This is Stanford's Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law podcast. We are studying why governments fail. We are going to talk about economic and political development at home and around the world. Welcome to the CDDRL's Democracy World. I am Francis Fukuyama. I am the Mossbacher Director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at Stanford University. Uh, and I'm also the chairman of the editorial board of the American Interest uh, magazine. And I'm really pleased to welcome to Stanford uh, uh, and talk to uh, Ben Judah. Uh, ben is a journalist. Uh, he's the author of two books, uh, one entitled Fragile Empire, uh, and the other, uh, This is London. Uh, he's written for a number of um, publications, uh, of course, the American Interest, but also the Financial Times, the uh, New York Times, the, Time, the Sunday Times. Uh, he's done uh, profiles um, of uh, Emmanuel Macron recently and Imran Khan. Uh, and so what I actually want to discuss today is a piece that he did in the American Interest on Tocqueville. So generally speaking, uh, Americans uh, are quite reverential when they talk about Tocqueville, but in this piece, uh, Ben, you, uh, you are critical. Uh, and so maybe you can just explain what, what, the, what the source of the criticism was and why you think we are perhaps taking Tocqueville a little too seriously. Uh, well, well, thank you, and it's uh, an honor to, uh, to be here. And I thought maybe a good place to begin with my um, criticism of Tocqueville would be to read out a quote uh, from uh, him that might shock uh, American uh, listeners. This is um, Tocqueville writing in 1841 uh, about events in Algeria, then coming under intensified French colonization and uh, occupation. I have often heard men who I respect, but with whom I do not agree, find it wrong that we burn harvests, that we empty silos, and finally that we seize unarmed men, women and children. These, in my view, are unfortunate necessities, but ones to which any people who want to wage war on Arabs are obliged to submit. Well now, that's this Tocqueville sounds very different uh, to the Tocqueville of democracy in America, and certainly the Tocqueville who is still quoted with more frequency than perhaps any any other French writer. Mm -hmm. If you look at the um, sort of regular columnists of the New York Times, and what I wanted to show in this essay is that the American Tocqueville is not quite the actual historical Tocqueville, and that the best way to understand who he was and what his greater intellectual project was is to put democracy in America as part of the wider cycle that he saw himself working on, which was a series, a sort of panorama on colonies. America, the old America, the freed colony, his work on the West Indies and the French West Indies of the old colony, and his work on France's new colony in Algeria, which is where he had his sort of most important political impact as a member of the sort of French Chambre des Députés, the French sort of uh, assemb parliamentary assembly, and also briefly as a French foreign minister. And his vision was that he was going to cap off this project with uh, 
a tome that never saw the light of day, uh, fortunately, uh, fortunately for his reputation and uh, perhaps unfortunately for us, which was supposed to be a study of Britain's astonishing greatness in India. Mm-hmm. So how to understand, um, you know, who, who Tocqueville sort of was. And if you kind of go through his uh, writing, you see him in writings on the United States when faced with issues of race or ethnicity or of Native Americans, showing a certain sort of morality, hostility to expropriation and expulsion, viewing these as really sort of morally degrading aspects of American culture. Then when he returns to France and very quickly engages himself with great élan in the colonial project, considering briefly whether he should himself become a settler and um, establish lands in Algeria. His writing changes dramatically, and you see him becoming a cheerleader for razia, for extreme measures taken to repress uh, the um, Arab population. So I found this a really interesting historical kind of moment to look into. Firstly, because it's very popular currently for left-wing writers to pick a certain writer from the 19th century uh, or the 20th century and to highlight uh, aspects of racism or, or, or imperialism. It's very popular for conservatives to respond with, oh, well, you can't judge 19th century figures by 21st century standards. But looking at Tocqueville and Tocqueville's positioning in the debate on Algeria was fascinating because it takes one into, I think, a forgotten moment in colonial history where France's conquest of Algeria, unlike other colonial projects later in the century in Africa, was extremely long, difficult, protracted. It takes over 10 years and highly contested within the French public, in which debates about are we going to follow the American example are frequently discussed in the Chamber of Deputies, and Tocqueville positions himself as a partisan of this project, facing a lot of criticism from his own sort of broadly liberal or centre-left, by our current understanding, block within the the sort of parliament. So Mm -hmm. I think this sort of study allows us to sort of kind of uh, to bust uh, that sort of false uh, dichotomy uh, slightly. So um, there's another part of your article that talked about why uh, you thought Tocqueville had become popular, that he was actually being used not, you know, as a thinker in his own right, but following a certain agenda that had more to do with 20th century politics than with the politics of colonialism in, in his time. Tell us about that. Well, this was the second thrust of the article. And in France at the moment, there has been, really over the last 10 years, a certain debate about Tocqueville and why is Tocqueville now so central to the French national debate and elements of French uh, higher education? Mm -hmm. Why is there a Tocqueville conference, a Tocqueville library, when broadly in France he was little known before the uh, 1950s. And what I sought to do in this uh, essay was to show how, you know, one of those great projects of the 20th century, which 
was the quest for an anti-Marx, the quest to find political philosophers and political thinking to compete with uh, the Marxist canon in France played itself out through Raymond Aron's uh, project to make Tocqueville the indispensable philosopher. And I talked about how successful that was and how Raymond, Raymond Aron sort of very consciously played Tocqueville. And I'm not sort of paraphrasing there. He literally said in the Figaro in May 1968, I am playing Tocqueville. And you know, Tocqueville has become essential to a liberal or conservative, uh, depending on what you want to label it, project mm -hmm. in French um, thought, mm -hmm. which Raymond Aron at the beginning. You see it. You see it sort of rise through sort of Francois Furet to discredit a number of intellectual ideas that were viewed to be deeply threatening in mm -hmm. May '68. One of those uh, ideas. Okay. Well, yeah. but so let me ask: so What's wrong with that? I mean. You know, the, 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 the pall that Karl Marx cast over the French intellectual left was, you know, I think astonishing. I mean, everybody had to line up, not just as Marxist, but, you know, as Stalinist. And, you know, it led all of these French intellectuals to fail to recognize what the Soviet Union was really about, really not until Solzhenitsyn was there any glimmerings of a recognition of the horrors of the famine or of all the purges, you know, that had, uh, uh, taken place. Uh, and by contrast, liberal thought in France has always been a very weak sister. So, yeah, you can point to Raymond Aron and Francois Furet, but there are not very many others, right? Whereas um, the number of Marxist intellectuals, you know, goes on forever. So, well, wouldn't you would say that France needed a, an anti-Marx? Um, well, I'm fascinated by the quest for the anti-Marx and how that shaped um, you know, late 20th century sort of liberalism and conservatism. And I've been thinking about this since I went to CPAC and I saw stacks of books of, uh, you know, of Friedrich Hayek. Mm -hmm. CPAC being? Um, the sort of conservative uh, movement uh, event in the uh, uh, sort of just outside Washington. In the United States. In the United States. Mm -hmm. And I was astonished about how these conservatives were mimicking some of the worst aspects mm -hmm. of Marxist thought. Sacred mm -hmm. texts, very, very brittle economic, uh, th economic thinking. Yeah. And I think that the, what one sees through a lot of sociology and political theory is the Marxist other, and that we can't understand. Well, okay, but, but look, I mean, I, I think this ide uh, idealization of Hayek on the right is, is a little bit ridiculous, but I just think there's no comparison between Hayek and Tocqueville. Tocqueville is a far deeper thinker than Hayek is. I mean, Hayek had a very uh, schematic understanding, you know, that was based on a few assumptions about spontaneous order and dangers of hierarchy. He had some, you know, I think important insights. His uh, 1947 article, The Uses of Information in a Society, actually I think was one of his greatest contributions. But, you know, so much of what he wrote was so polemical, like the, the road to serfdom, yes. uh, that it doesn't really rise to being, you know, a, a serious work of political theory. Whereas Tocqueville, in my view, you know, was a very serious thinker. I mean, he thought on a philosophical level. Uh, and he was aware of a range of uh, human problems that escaped, you know, being characterized simply in the way that, you know, Hayekian libertarians can, mm. you know, come up with solutions to problems. Well, so 
what, what is what would be my problem mm -hmm. with this project of sort of uh, the project of sort of raising Tocqueville in the French debate? Um, well, I'm not a Marxist, and I think that the sort of Stalinist moment in French intellectual thought um, is, is, in, is in many ways a deeply shameful moment in French uh, intellectual culture. And had I been present at uh, the time, would uh, most certainly have been sort of uh, in the shadow, trying to position myself in the shadow of, uh, Ray, of Raymond Aron. However, today, I would disagree with you when you said that, you know, Lib French liberalism uh, is the sort of weaker sister to the French. I think you've seen in France a real triumph of sort of Aron and Furet's interpretation of the revolution, mm -hmm. downplaying the revolution, downplaying the importance or even the possibility of them. And we see that um, not only we see that manifesting itself in the, what are the dominant ideologies in you know, the French elite currently. And I think a lot of that comes from them placing Tocqueville really at the at the center uh, of uh, you know and at the center of an intellectual offensive. Now, what's my problem with the way Tocqueville is presented? And in a way, this is a very French problem, which is Tocqueville, I believe, is presented in the French debate and even more so in the in the U.S. debate, though that's perhaps more forgivable in a deeply ahistoricized manner. And Tocqueville is presented as the theoretician of the French state. He's presented as the theoretician of American democracy, of revolution, and the, fate, the inevitable failure of, you know, these sort of uh, moments to overcome, you know, inherent and existing statehood. But he's never presented as what he saw himself as, which is the great expert on the colonies. And Raymond Aron deliberately chose not to raise awareness and to remain mute on Tocqueville's actual political role and on Tocqueville's writings on Algeria. And when France is, to this day, a society, I think, still shaped by that war in the 1830s and 1840s, the later Algerian war in our own times and how the curses of, uh, and the scars of that moment spill over into the French polity, mm -hmm. I think that simply ignoring it and pretending it didn't happen, I think is, uh, is, is both intellectually dishonest and doesn't reveal to us, you know, the, the true nature of France at that moment. And um, Yeah, although that assumes that what you want out of a great thinker is, you know, sociological insight into a particular time and place, whereas it seems to me that what makes him a great thinker is actually he transcended those categories and really talked about certain, you know, very uh, much more universal issues in political uh, in political theory. So it seems to me that you can excuse, you know, a thinker on that caliber of that caliber uh, for you know bad political judgments in certain spheres, while uh, actually seeing that he has a coherent body of thought uh, that is not really dependent on his views on whether French colonization in Algeria was justified or not. I think it's interesting which thinkers are presented in a historicized setting and which thinkers are not. And I think that are, maybe it's because we need saints and maybe it's because, you know, as they've withered away, we've sought to 
to recreate them in Tocqueville and, and Orwell. There are certain figures that are presented as, you know, these sort of these, these great men of morality. And uh, Orwell, and I think Orwell is very troubling in a lot of aspects, and Tocqueville is another one. And I think that that is the wrong approach. And I don't think that people should stop reading Tocqueville. I think that there is you know, extraordinary richness and wealth. And I'd agree with you that he's a sort of, you know, sort of greatly important thinker. But simply ignoring what was his major contribution to French history as a politician and as an MP, which was being a cheerleader for the colonization of Algeria, I think is, I, I don't, that doesn't, doesn't strike me as, uh, you know, as intellectually kind of, as intellectually honest. Well, okay. So let me um, let me lay out the reasons why I think uh, I actually do uh, tend to canonize Tocqueville in, in many ways, and why I think that he is a an important thinker, and you know why I think it's safe to really ignore whatever he said about Algeria. Uh, so there are several levels on which I think this is the case, and, and it. So w one one line. Or, or one way in which I think he was important uh, is methodological, and the other point is actually what he says substantively about the nature of modern democracy and the whole drive towards equality that lay behind it. So let me begin with the methodological uh, part. The uh, chapter in Democracy in America that I make my students in my introductory comparative politics course read all the time, uh, is this little vignette about two Englishmen that meet in a foreign country compared to two Americans that meet in a foreign country. And he says the Englishmen will kind of sniff around each other, they'll be very uh, uh, brief until the moment that they say where they're from. And if it turns out that they're both upper class Englishmen, which is likely if you're traveling in a foreign country, and all of a sudden they become you know, very deep friends because they both went to Eton, they both went to the same college at Oxford, they have <laughs> all of these you know, social connections. Whereas the two Americans uh, meeting in a foreign country will be very convivial, jovial, they'll slap each other on the back, say great to see you here and so forth. And then you know, uh, in a little while they'll stop talking to each other because it turns out they have nothing in common and they actually have no particular way of relating t uh, to one another. And Tocqueville then relates this to the class structure uh, that he really finds the thing that separates uh, uh, Britain from the United States, that Britain inherited this feudal class structure, which is fundamental to understanding the way that people operate, so that uh, the, the class structure serves as a barrier between working class and, and upper-class uh, people from that country, but it also deepens the kinds of connections that are possible among people from the same social class. And he says that about himself, that he himself comes from an aristocratic family. Uh, aristocracy was critical for producing a certain class of people that could be incredibly arrogant, but also could aspire to very high things. I think one of the uh, you know, one of the great moments in democracy in America is his account of Pascal and his, you know, saying that you cannot imagine a figure like Pascal with the torment uh, of his, you know, search for God 
uh, arising in a, in a democratic society like America because the kind of extremes that exist in a class-based society simply wouldn't, you know, they, they wouldn't educate a, a person in the way that Tocqueville is educated. On the other hand, in America, everybody is superficially equal and, and superficially happy. Um, I remember there used to be this bumper sticker when I lived in Los Angeles, uh, which people like to put on their cars that said, welcome to LA, now get the hell out. <laughs> and, you know, and as I used to say to my students, or I still say to them, uh, you know, in a way there's a real truth to that, that Americans are equal, but they actually don't hold that much in common, any two, you know, random Americans, because they don't have a class structure. They come from many different places. Uh, there is no deep culture that would affect, you know, two Etonians uh, uh, in the way, you know, in, in, a, in a similar way. So I, I do this long wind-up simply because it seems to me this illustrates several things. That first of all, what Tocqueville is really observing is not the formal, visible institutions. You know, he talks about American federalism and institutions in, in the United States, the court system and the effects that this has. But it just seems to me that he is really the first sociologist or, if you will, a social anthropologist who observes all of these little mores and ways of behavior and connects them to much deeper issues like the social structure of the societies that he's observing. And the thing about, uh, <laughs> in fact, I had a conversation with a Nobel Prize winning economist who criticized me for what he called casual empiricism, meaning I, I wasn't using a lot of regressions in my uh, analysis. And I said to him, well, you know, but you look at a person like Tocqueville, he didn't use regressions either. You know, he was a casual empiricist. He traveled around the United States for nine months, ostensibly to study the American prison system with Gustave de Beaumont, and then wrote uh, a book that was incredibly filled with insights that he could get because he was a great interviewer that he could talk to people from different walks of life. He could uh, understand, you know, not, again, the formal institutions, but the ways of life of different groups of, you know, social groups within the United States. And from that, you know, connected to a much larger story about, you know, how the principle of equality had suffused, you know, this new society and made it really quite different from his uh, native France. So that's the methodological part that, you know, I regard him really as the first, the first real sociologist. Uh, I guess the political part is a little bit different because, you know, there's been this big tension in the United States between different understandings of liberty. And so one understanding of liberty is that liberty is a matter of the liberty of individuals uh, from action by a centralized state. Uh, and that the way to protect, you know, that liberty was to fortify the state with a judiciary that, you know, protected those individuals and so forth. But there was a second conception of liberty, uh, which was much more the one that was embedded in American federalism, which was basically to spread out power uh, because you ultimately couldn't trust, you know, concentrated power in, in um, uh, a single sovereign. And therefore, you know, what American federalism did was to put you know, to pit power against power and to preserve liberty as a matter of this decentralized power. And so he made a, you know, uh, you know a case for uh, that understanding of, you know, the nature of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the check and balance system that existed in the country. Now, 
This obviously gets into a lot of uh, problems when you get into the period prior to the Civil War when you know it was that decentralized power that protected slavery and so forth. But I think Tocqueville was you know aware of that. So I think on quite a number of levels, you know, he was both an important theorist but also connected his observations, you know, I think to uh, bigger theoretical issues uh, that I think we're still trying to wrestle with. Well, I think there are two ways to, mm -hmm. to look at it. There's the way that you just outlined, which is viewing him as a building block in the sort of great house of contemporary political thinking and uh, sociology. And the way that I have chosen to look at him in this essay is to look at him, I think, on his own terms, which is as a politician who is also a political thinker, and to try and evaluate him in that context in the same way that he chose to evaluate politicians who were political thinkers in uh, the old regime and the revolution. And what I think we see is, as you outlined, some of the, the best aspects of the 19th century uh, in his thinking, but also some of the worst. And I'm fascinated at the moment about where really clever people get it wrong and why, how people make mistakes. Because I think we, we have too much of a bias in understanding history to try and work out how people come to the right answer mm -hmm. and not how people are coming to the, the wrong answer. And I think the Algerian episode of Tocqueville, where you see an individual who could have had such moral and intellectual and philosophical clarity on the Mississippi, suddenly finds himself endorsing parallel legal systems, endorsing um, you know, razia, endorsing um, what were known as les enfumades, the sort of smokeouts of uh, sort of Arab and Berber tribes from their locations, you know, arguing that France must continue to commit, commit more to this project of colonialism has really interested me. So I was trying to work out why. And I think if you look, we come to a very interesting point here, which is the idea of America in the minds of certain Europeans in the 19th century. And I think we see in de Tocqueville a vision of greatness and colonial greatness and the establishment of world historic global empires as the sublime and that we see this incredible vulnerability in his writings um, from Algeria to this uh, this idea and when he first arrives in Algeria he sort of rhapsodizes that Algeria uh, Algiers reminds him of Cincinnati transported to African soil and when he sort of writes to and of the great military leaders or the not so great military leaders of this in many ways quite unsuccessful military campaign you see him describing in these sort of rhapsodic tones that them on horseback and I think it's this the intellectual vulnerability to the sublime and seeing the sublime in, in war and greatness. Well, okay, so, uh, <laughs> so let me put a different kind of case to you, which is that you know the serious things that you ought to pay attention to in Tocqueville's writings have absolutely nothing to do with empire and greatness, uh, but rather actually the dangers of concentrated state power. Uh, so the other area where I think Tocqueville is broadly recognized today as a kind of founder of a major way of interpreting uh, modern democracy is in his writings of what he called the art of association. So this, in the last 20 years, you know, has been a really, we're really since the fall of communism, has become a major trope in thinking about democracy. That, 
you can't really have a viable democracy unless you have civil society, unless you have this layer of voluntary association that is not the state, is not the family, is not the private sector, but are citizens that get together for public purposes to pursue common interests uh, uh, together. And I think probably the thing that most uh, people who have read Democracy in America, I mean, if there's one thing they remember from it, is those chapters on the American art of association where he argues and he visited, so he visited the United States in the early 1830s. It was a very interesting time in American history because this was both a time of great social dysfunction. Uh, the, I believe the average consumption of alcohol in the United States was something on the order of, you know, uh, 300 liters per year. I mean, don't quote me on this, but it was a, you know, so if we got a opioid epidemic right now, at that point they really had a big alcoholism epidemic. But this had actually called forth this religious revival, which he was there in the middle of, and a lot of the art of association uh, were people like the Shakers or the Mormons or this area, you know, the burned out district uh, around Elmira, New York, that spawned a lot of American uh, religions. And he was incredibly impressed with the fact that the that Americans were not dependent on the existence of a centralized state uh, to solve a problem like, you know, the social scourge of alcoholism, but you had temperance societies and Bible studies and a lot of American decentralized groups trying to deal with these problems uh, on their own. He said it's a school for democracy because it takes people out of this exclusive preoccupation with their own individual interests or their own family's, uh, you know, narrow interests. and connects them to a broader world. And actually, uh, it's deeply connected to what he wrote in The Old Regime and the Revolution because he, in that book, said that the whole problem with the French political system was over-centralization. That beginning, you know, with uh, Louis Thirteenth and um, the rise of the Intendance, that the French king had centralized the French political system so that everything uh, was controlled out of France. And it left a legacy by the time you got to the uh, revolution where, y you know, he says if you look at a village, uh, if you look at the businesses, they're all pathetic because everybody is spending all of their time seeking a, a royal charter. Uh, nobody can take the initiative to do anything on their own because the state has become so overweening and so centralized that it spread this kind of long-term dependence. And so he has this one phrase in the old regime where he says, uh, there isn't a single project that 10 Frenchmen could agree on, you know, at the same mm -hmm. time. And he contrasts this with what he saw in America, where Americans are very ready to get together to do all sorts of things. And, you know, this has been taken up, you know, in more recent times by people like Bob Putnam, you know, in Bowling Alone, where he, you know, he asked the question, is that art of association? And by the way, this is something I think that empirically you can demonstrate if you look at things like the World Values Survey, where they ask about trust in other people and associational membership and so forth. That historically, you know, American rates have been higher than you know than those in France. In much of Europe, you don't have private universities, you don't have private charities, you don't have these big foundations giving money to people simply because everybody expects the state is going to, you know, take responsibility. So, I do think that he was you know, a major theorist that recognized the importance of civil society to a functioning democracy. 
And I think if you take that line of thought seriously, you realize, I mean, and, and this is what he says explicitly, that having an overly strong centralized state undermines civil society because it infantilizes people, it makes them dependent on this benevolent paternal power. Uh, you know, he saw that there was a risk of excessive, you know, conformity to, you know, to this kind of power. Uh, and that, again, I think is, you know, this is an issue that we're debating. I mean, as the whole social capital bowling alone debate indicates, that's still something that I think is really central to the way that uh, certainly Americans think about democracy. I think as a French citizen, and I think it's important to try and understand what was in the minds of the politicians which committed France to the conflict second only uh, in defining it to the great wars with with Germany and to and only through doing an x-ray of their minds can we begin to understand how we ended up in this situation where France has some of the highest uh, levels of ethnic strife in uh, Western Europe and I think Tocqueville is so important to do that x-ray on and looking at his writings about America in the context of empire and Algeria was extremely revealing to me because he's not trying to bring that, that what you outlined, home. He's trying to bring a particular device. He's struggling to find the particular form of colonial success in America. And in that way, he's drawing a sort of inspiration from the American West and what he saw there, in some ways similar to Cecil Rhodes, who was trying to build a British America in, uh, in Africa um, you know, a few generations uh, later. And that was, that I guess is my, my sort of problem there. Mm -hmm. That's how I'd like to problematize him. I wouldn't like to stigmatize him. I'd like just him to be presented as this, mm -hmm. in the English language debate, a little closer to how he's represented in the French debate mm -hmm. at the moment, which is a thinker whose faults we also need to understand to understand how sort of we are where uh, we are. Okay, so let me make my final pitch for Tocqueville. So this uh, this last one again <coughs> is much more related to my status as a professor in a university rather than anything else. Uh, one thing that I really admired about him was. Uh, he was a member of the French uh, Chamber of Deputies, as you said, in the 1850s. When he, so he wrote the old regime and the revolution late in life. It was one of his later works. And one of the things I admired incredibly about him is, here he is. He's a well-established politician. Maybe he's doing all these terrible things, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Algeria. Uh, but he, you know, he has a serious life in Paris. Uh, but he decides that he really needs to study uh, the revolution. And what he does is he goes off for nearly a year uh, to look at all of these manor records in, uh, in uh, Normandy. I mean, he starts, you know, in his own area of France. Uh, and he does all of this work like he's a third-year graduate student. You know, he goes through all these dusty manor records. He does actually primary historical research, reading uh, these cahiers in which, you know, individual peasants and, you know, uh, members of a manor household would could make complaints. I mean, this they they did this periodically in the old regime, but then they you know they all became public uh, after the revolution. 
Uh, and I admire people like that. Uh, you know, usually by the time you're a well-established uh, writer at, at age 50, uh, you basically don't want to do any work. You know, you want to let all your research assistants gather all the data for you, and or else you just end up regurgitating stuff that you said, you know, uh, 25 years ago. Um, in a way, uh, he reminded me in that sense of James Q. Wilson, the great uh, political scientist who, again, in his, you know, when he was in his 50s, decided that he would study varieties of police behavior, and he went around the country interviewing, you know, uh, police in different police stations. Uh, so uh, this, this is not relevant to racism, Algeria, ethnic conflict, but I think it's another reason why, as an intellectual, I just think that Tocqueville is really something special because, you know, a lot of times intellectuals are lazy and uh, they are kind of immune to empirical evidence. And I think we have a lot of evidence that Tocqueville was not one of them. Well, just a sort of closing sort of statement and um, to that sort of very inspiring sort of call to, to, to hard work. Um, when, you know, our, when we present left-wing thinkers, we are on edge to say one cannot simply look at Lenin as a political thinker, but also one must and is obligated to look at him as a politician. The same with the text of Trotsky mm -hmm. and, of course, with Marx. And that we have to be extremely aware of the historical context and long-term implications. Yeah, but isn't it the case, so as political thinkers, First of all, I don't think they were very good, uh, but it's not, I mean, what we blame them for is actually deliberately starting political movements that had really terrible consequences. And I don't see, well, okay, I guess you can say with Algeria, yeah, the colonization of Algeria, but, you know, in a certain sense, that, that wasn't connected to the main body of his thought. I mean, he didn't leave a legacy the way Karl Marx did, where every would-be colonist said, oh, you know, I'm doing this because Tocqueville legitimated it. You know, it, it does seem to me that that's something that was fairly uh, peripheral to the way that we remember him and, and, and historically how he, was, how he was treated. I think that he considered himself, though, the great authority and expert on colonies and empires, and that so much of his work revealing these great insights into how America works comes from his desire to understand how this sort of great empire was spreading in North America. And I think if we want to understand him on his own terms, we should view him. One can argue that that's, that's not important because he, that's not how he holds up the bookcase of political theory. But that's why I think that looking at you know, the Algerian writings is, uh, is so important. And just to sort of bring it back to left-wing thinkers, thinkers which are correctly problematized is if they've got something important to say they endure despite um, you know the the deep problems of their of their politics and uh, and their persons and I'm very confident that Tocqueville will endure if even if we put his colonial writings and his Algerian writings more prominently, and we don't seek to hide them or evade them like Remoyeron did. Okay. All right, with that, uh, this has been a very interesting discussion, so thank you very much. And, uh, you know, this is a debate that will not end uh, with our discussion, but uh, hopefully will continue. So thanks very much. Thank you for listening. 
This podcast is produced by Stanford's Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. Feel free to use it in the classrooms and for other educational purposes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Medium.